Please be seated. Let us pray. Spirit of life, God of love, open our hearts and enter in, that hearing your word of love, we may become your love for others. Amen. The first reading comes from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. The word of the Holy One to Jesus, to Elijah was, Get up, go to Zarephath, which is part of Sidon, and settle there. Watch now, I have commanded a widow woman there to provide for you. And Elijah got up and went to Zarephath. Then he came to the gate of the town, and look, a widow woman was there gathering sticks. So he called to her and said, Bring me, please, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. She went to bring it, and he called to her and said, Bring me, please, a little bit of, a bit of bread in your hand. Then she said, As the Holy One, your God, lives, if I had a cake. There is only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. Now look, I am gathering two sticks, then I will go home and prepare the oil and flour for myself and for my child. We will eat it and we will die. Then Elijah said to her, Fear not, go and do as you have said, only make me a little cake of it and bring it to me first, then make something for yourself and your child afterwards. For thus says the Holy, God, Holy One, the God of Israel, the jar of flour will not, be, will not empty and the jug of oil will not decrease until the day that the Holy One grants rain upon the earth. She went and she did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour did not empty and the jug of oil did not decrease according to the word of the Holy One that God spoke through Elijah. text. The story from 1 Kings that Audrey just read is the story that Jesus will reference that gets him in some trouble in our passage from Luke tonight. So we, while we're not preaching directly from that, uh, that 1 Kings passage, we're really preaching the Luke passage tonight. Um, it is helpful to have what we just heard in mind as we approach the gospel reading. So let's continue listening for what the Spirit is saying to the church from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 27, and um, I'm going to tack on verses 28 to 30 because I think they're helpful for us in uh, kind of finding out how this story ends. Now Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been nurtured and went, according to his practice, on the day of the Sabbath to the synagogue. And he stood up to read and then it was given to the uh, and then was given him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written the spirit of the most high is upon me because god has anointed me to preach to proclaim good news to those who are poor god has sent me to preach liberation to those who are captives and recovery of sight to those who are blind to liberate those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Most High's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And every eye of all in the synagogue looked intently at him. And then he began to speak to them, saying, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
And all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words that had come from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? And then Jesus said of them, or said to them rather, of course you all will quote me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you all will say, the things we have heard that you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in their hometown. But I speak truth to you all. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were closed three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all of the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, rather to Zarephath in Sidon, to a woman, to a widow woman there. And there were also many lepers in Israel and in the, in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And this is, that's where Gaphne ends the text, but we're going to continue. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off a cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Holy wisdom, holy word, thanks be to God. It's a strange scene, isn't it? <laughs> uh, that is a scene, though, that I think for some of us um, might hit a little bit close to home. Um, after a short stint out in the world, Jesus returns to his home congregation in Nazareth. This is the spiritual community, the text says, in which he was nurtured. And having been invited to read a passage and to share his wisdom, Mary and Joseph's son tells the truth about God and about the folks who are generally not considered by this crowd to be the people of God. And to be fair, when Jesus speaks in generalities in this passage, when he talks about good news to the poor and release to the captives and etc., etc., his words appear to be praised by the hometown crowd. Right? They spoke well of him, they, they marveled at him, so on and so forth. But, but when he gets specific... Elijah was sent to the widow in Sidon, not to the widows in Israel. Naaman the leprous Syrian is healed, but not any of the leprous Jews. When he gets personal, he gets run out of town. And it is worth noting, I think, right from the outset, that from this point forward in Luke's story, Jesus does not ever again return to his hometown of Nazareth. And it's hard to blame him for that decision right? I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to return after being driven to the edge of a cliff by my family friends. A prophet is never accepted in their hometown. It's a statement that Jesus makes, interestingly, not in reflection upon the terrifying events of the day. He doesn't say, whoa, I did not see that coming. I wonder why they tried to throw me off a cliff. Oh, well, I guess a prophet's never accepted in their hometown. No, it is while the people are still speaking well of Jesus that he gives voice to this self-fulfilling prophetic word. In other words, it's not his personal experience of rejection by his religious community that convinces Jesus of its inherent fickleness. This is not a turning point in his approach to religion or it's not a turning point in his own ministry. It's just kind of his anthropology. It's what he thinks about humans. At least in this matter, our Messiah appears to be a little bit of a Calvinist. 
He expects us to misunderstand things. He expects even those of us he loves and knows to be on his team, he expects us to act selfishly. He expects people, even lovely people, he expects that they will do them, that he will do, excuse me, that they will do him harm. It's just his anthropology. It's true that he never goes back to Nazareth, but given what Jesus seems to expect of people, all people, his fellow Nazarenes included, it's kind of more interesting to me that he chooses to go to the synagogue at all in the first place. The text says he went according to his practice on the day of the Sabbath to the synagogue. And knowing what we know about Jesus and what he thinks about, what he appears to think about people, we might ask, why would anyone make it a regular practice to go sit in a room with a bunch of potentially harmful people? I imagine some of us have asked a similar question about the church. It often gets framed as a question on the necessity or perhaps more pointedly on the hypocrisy of the religious. Why should I saddle myself to those two-faced people who talk about God as love one minute and build that wall the next? But Jesus' movements here suggest more, I think, a question on what Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann calls the threat of life. To live at all in this world is to accept the risk of company to live at all in this world is to accept the risk of company, and, and religious company is neither less risky nor more risky than any other company. People is people, as the saying goes. doesn't matter if they're religious or not. Jesus, I think, makes it his custom to sit among the religious, not because the people in the church or the synagogue are somehow better, clearly we are not, but because by definition, religion is the practice of posturing ourselves in humility before some holy other. It is a counterbalance against the perfectly common but terribly unhelpful impulse to posture ourselves in ways that serve only ourselves or to posture ourselves in ways that inherently shame people who are not like us. Done well, religion is a recognition of our finitude it is an openness to having our minds changed and our feet moved as the eternal is revealed among us. It's not an accomplishment to boast. It's not a club to which we gain access, but it is an invitation. It's a revelation. It's a gift to be received, done well. I think that is what religion is. But it's not always done well, is it? <laughs> This is, I think, why Jesus never turns people away. No matter how horrible they may be to him or to others, he rejects certain ways of being in the world. Yes, quite forcefully, he rejects certain ways of being in the world at times, but he never, to my knowledge, he never rejects people who come and seek his company. Even those who, in no uncertain terms, have rejected him. Jesus does not act to reject people from his presence. He might get rejected but he doesn't cast people out. Jesus, in this story, places before his community, his spiritual community, the radical grace and mercy of God, the, the aim of what we might call true religion, and they unceremoniously reject both sermon and preacher alike. 
And we don't get a whole lot of Jesus' reaction other than like he mysteriously slips through the crowd at the end, right? It doesn't say, and Jesus felt bad about that. It's just like he just kind of goes on his way. What I think we can take from that, though, is that Jesus honors their rejection of him. He doesn't get pushy. He doesn't go back and try to convert people to his way of thinking and seeing again. He just kind of moves on to the next town where on the very next Sabbath, and this is literally two verses after we finished, on the very next Sabbath, he's found in the next synagogue. Two chapters later, in another town, on another Sabbath, in another synagogue, Jesus is there teaching among the people of that synagogue. His, his rejection by some, even some very important people to him, within the religious institution, is never for Jesus a reason to abandon the religious impulse. It's not a reason for Jesus, at least, to abandon its imperfect community of practitioners. It is not exactly a secret of this community of faith, within it or out on campus, I don't think, um, that many of us are here in spite of the church and not because of it. Um, Some of you have had really terrible experiences in and with your hometown churches and um, you know, conversations, I think, that have happened around this place have just kind of uh, broken our hearts open together. And um, uh, it's, it's hard to recount those experiences, I think. Some of us, if our experience at home with church was great, still have to walk by the Tate preachers from time to time. Some of us got sucked into a different campus ministry that functioned differently than this one does and found yourself hurt or rejected there. And a number of you have vocalized to Haley or to me that if it were not for the PSC, you probably wouldn't be in church anywhere. And, and, you know, I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to say something different than this, but like, I get that. And we honor that. And if I've just described part of your journey, I hope that you know that your very presence here makes you that much more like Jesus, at least in this story. In spite of whatever pain or trauma may have been inflicted by a past religious community, you have committed to move on to the next town and the next community to keep standing before God in humility and awe. And I think that is truly miraculous and beautiful. And we thank you, I thank you, for your trust and your hope and the gift that it is to this community of faith. Not to mention it's really flattering. (laughs) There's an ego part of me that revels in the comparison to other Christian communities because when it goes in our favor, that allows me to believe, even if just for a minute, that we've accomplished something superhuman here. Almost all of those other religious groups are commonly corrupt while we've managed to create the perfect campus ministry. Woo, we did it. Do y'all know the movie Elf? Do you remember when Will Ferrell like bursts into the little cafe? Way to go, congratulations, you made the world's best cup of coffee. And everybody looks at him like he's off his rocker. I feel like the church can be a little bit like that sometimes. We did it, we made the perfect Christian community here. But of course, such thinking is, is a trap. Because if we're just better than them, if we're just right and they're just wrong, 
then I think we're pretty well justified in shouting people down and running them out of our midst. I mean, we've got a reputation to keep up after all, right? We can't just let anybody in here. And do you see how sneaky that is? Just like that. A congregation of exiles can become the congregation of exclusivist dogmatism that they once fled. It can happen in an instant. How do we resist such a regressive transformation? I think this is a hugely important question. Jesus' answer in this story seems to be that we keep on putting ourselves among the hypocrites. Not apart from them. We keep on putting ourselves among the failed religious people. Daring to tell the truth about God and about our neighbors and about ourselves, even as we struggle to live it into being. I had a lot going on this week and I ran out of time to complete this sermon, so I'm going to end with a a quote from um, uh, a book called Unapologetic by a guy named Francis Spufford. Spufford? I don't know how to say his name. But I read an article this week that got me kind of all over the place for this sermon as you can tell, and it also ended with this quote. And there is a big F word in here, and I'm just going to say it, so sorry to the people online who deal with, who don't like to hear the F word in sermons, but it's there, so we're just going to do it. Um, Spooford says, we don't in fact believe that the church is precious because it is good, or because it does good, or because it might do good some point in the future. We care about its behavior, yes, but we don't really believe that it's muddled and sometimes awful record is the only truth about the church. We believe that the church is precious because it embodies something that the human propensity to f*** things up in general, and our sins of complicity in particular, cannot destroy. Something which already exists now despite our every failure and which consequently always has existed for Christians right through all the dark centuries when slavery and tyranny governed the world and the church too. For us, you see, the church is not just another institution. It is a failing but never quite failed attempt by limited people to perpetuate the unlimited generosity of God in the world. May we always be counted among them. Thanks be to God.